And now, please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. Before we read the scripture, let's ask the Lord's blessing and help as we read. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand your word. Lord, that you would lead us into all truth and guide us into understanding what you are teaching us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Children, you can come forward to meet Austin Patty at the front. He died for us. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You hear that? He loved you and he gave himself for you. It's always about faith in what he does, not what we do. That's important. Now, sometimes you might think, okay, I had faith in Jesus, I'm saved, and so that's done. But did you hear what he said? I live, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you catch that? His whole time on this planet, in that body, he's living by faith in Jesus. You see that? Once upon a time, our family, our family went to see the Grand Canyon. Now I was just a little kid. So we're, we're at the Grand Canyon, and it is magnificent. It is huge. It's deep, and it's beautiful with all those red rocks. And you know what people do when they get near something like that? Or the ocean. It doesn't matter what. Something really beautiful. Guess where everybody goes? Right to the edge, right? They want to get really close, except for one group, and that's the moms. Do you know what they're worried about? 
falling over. That's right. So like, hold dad's hand, get back from the edge. You know, so they're different. But the rest of us were all right there on the edge. Well, we had lunch on this big rock right by the, it was close to the edge, so I'm surprised, but we were there. And there's this, there's this tree with its roots down inside it, cracking it up, I guess, over time. And it was one of these cool ones that's shaped by the wind. You know what I'm talking about? The wind blowing shapes it in this great shape. So we're under that, not getting a whole lot of shade, but we're under it, and we're getting our lunch. Well, mom must have been interested in distributing the food, which is another mom thing, right? Here, eat, eat. So she's worried about the food, and doesn't see Johnny, my little brother, moving toward the edge. And he slips. So he goes over the edge and is sliding down. But fortunately, just over the edge, there is a ledge. And his toes catch it. And his hands find grips up above. This is a freaky moment, right? This is scary. And so my dad, who's very quick, was. He's now dead. But when he was alive, <laughs> he's a quick in the dead, right? Quick in, so before and he's quick. <laughs> So he grabs on to a root from that tree and he reaches down with his other hand and Johnny doesn't take it. He's doing this, right? He's shaking and worried and he's looking around. I still wonder to this day, okay, now what was he looking for? Dad's hand is right there. Why didn't he grab it? So what do you think? Why would he not grab it right away? He's looking over here and he sees that the ledge goes over there and yeah, there's some kind of rocks that look like steps up. But you know, the problem is that those rocks only got you so far and still there was that place at the top where he'd still need rescuing. So he could try to get up by himself, but he couldn't. Why was he thinking about that? Dad's hand is right there. Now I wonder, did he, did he not want to be a bother to Dad? You know, because he's leaning over this edge and he's got the rock pressed into his ribs. Maybe he's worried about Dad. And you know, with his weight hanging off of Dad's hand, that probably would hurt. Now wait a minute. If God is offering himself to you, like my dad was offering himself to Johnny, never think that you're a bother. Do you think God's going to be like, oh, not again? I, uh, okay, so I sent my son for him, but ay, ay, ay. again? Do you think he's going to do that? Do you think he's going to go, ah, forget it? you think God's going to do that? No. It doesn't matter if you're coming to him for the thousandth time, having done the same thing again and again. You know what he wants to do? He wants to grab you and take you up to be with himself. Why? Because he loves you and he gave himself for you. Do you know that? So if he's willing to die for you, do you think he's willing to pick you up? Yeah, go to him. Now here's another thought. So maybe he doesn't want to be a bother, but maybe he wanted to be a big kid. You know when you're little, you're like, and he was younger than I am, so he's looking at me and going, I want to be a big kid like, like my brother Austin. I want to be a big kid. So maybe he's looking for another way instead of grabbing dad's hand because he wants to be a big kid. He wants to take care of himself and do things that are important, right? Like save himself from this predicament. Now, wait a minute. Is that going to work with God? Is there any other way to be rescued and to please him except to grab on to his hand when he's handing it to you? No, there is no other way. You can't do anything to make him love you more. Do you know that? You cannot do anything to make him love you more than he already does. Because he demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were enemies, while we were sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. Does he love you? Yes. He loves you and he gave himself for you. So when you sin, what should you do? 
Grab on! You bet. Okay, have a seat. Good morning. It's good to be here and uh, see many familiar faces and hopefully making some new friends. Um, my name is Eric Mullinex. I served for uh, many years at Covenant Presbyterian Church in, in Chattanooga. Uh, this morning I am substituting for a substitute. <laughs> so that makes me third string. So I, I hope you take that in mind uh, in your evaluation of this poor preacher. I want to I uh, uh, look again at uh, the... Uh, the text that's been read uh, uh, in Galatians chapter 1, particularly uh, these verses that speak of a contrary gospel and Paul's response to that. What would cause a disciple of Jesus Christ to speak in these kind of harsh words? What would cause an apostle that we believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to curse his theological opponents. Because that's what he does here in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And to make sure they understood What he was saying, he says it again in verse 9. I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And later in Galatians, Galatians 5, chapter 12, Paul uses even stronger language uh, when those who are coming to the Galatians and and pressing them uh, to uh, uh, keep the law that they may be made right with God and to circumcise circumcise themselves, he uses even stronger language in denouncing them. Why would he speak in such strong terms about his opponents. For this reason, Paul knew that this is a life and death matter, this matter of the gospel. And if we miss this, we've missed it all. And what we tend to do is to forget within the church is the same as what the Pharisees so often missed. And that is, those that add to the Word of God are just as destructive and soul-destroying as those who would subtract from the Word of God. Let me say that one more time because um, we are subject, I believe, to missing this. That, it, that in those churches, among those people who are zealous to study the Bible, who, who see the Bible as God's Word, this is the point where we're perhaps most vulnerable. If we criticize those who are known as theologically liberal by subtracting from the gospel, we don't seem to hear Paul telling us that it's just as destructive to add to the gospel, to improve the gospel by a prosperity gospel, by a performance gospel, by a political gospel. 
And there are other forms of gospel improving, if you will, that we could speak of. Um, but I raise this um, for this reason, ever so subtly in seeking to be serious about our approach to God's Word and His message to us, you and I find ourselves drawn over and over again to additions to the gospel. And Paul says that is not optional because wherever, whenever we add to the gospel, we are not slightly diluting it. Paul says we are destroying it. We make something else that isn't the gospel. So what I want us to do for the next few minutes is to seek to underscore and very intentionally inscribe on our own hearts four bedrock, unmovable aspects of the gospel, the message of the gospel, what the gospel is and what the gospel is not, four aspects of what we find in these verses that we've read. And the first is this, the gospel calls us to come to terms with and to recognize and to confess our absolute and utter spiritual inability to do anything to make ourselves right with God. That's at the heart of the gospel. And Paul will play this note over and over again. We see it throughout the scripture. What did Jesus say in John chapter 6 when a group of religious people came to him and said, Teacher, what must we do? You see, that's always the question of religion. What do we have to do? Where's the list? What do I need to do? Just tell me what to do. How do I remedy my plight? Teacher, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That's the question they ask. And Jesus responds, the work that God wants you to do is this. Now they press in, ears open. Do I make a pilgrimage? Do I reserve or observe religious uh, d disciplines? Do I memorize the prophets? What do I do? And Jesus said, this is the work. Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Period. Full stop. And they didn't like that. Why? Why do people not run to the gospel? Why is religion so compelling? Because in religion, I get to be somebody. I get to do something. I get to stand back and note my progress and to say those sage words of the Jeffersons, I'm moving on up. Now, that's, that's going to fly by a lot of people here in this room. I'm getting there. I'm improving all the time. I'm getting my house in order. I'm getting my life together. I'm becoming a better person. God must be pleased. You know, religion feeds my self-esteem. Well, isn't that a, a good thing? It, it can be healthy, but it can be hellacious. Because the very core and essence of our problem with God is not the act of um, assault or the act of immorality or the act of robbery. 
the essence of our problem with God and the source from which every sin blossoms and grows, as it were, is pride. Simply, purely, essentially at the heart of our rebellion against God and His crown rights is my pride. Is my pride. And so in order to save us, our pride has to be uh, broken and, and crushed because the root of the tree has not been cut down and every single religion feeds my pride, even those that would call me to humility. I cannot make myself right with God through any works, any performance, any improvement. Religion cannot save me. So I must come to terms with my own spiritual bankruptcy. My utter inability to save myself and therefore any teaching that calls me to some kind of synchronistic, mixed approach where God does his part and I do mine is not good news. It's not gospel at all because it, really, it leaves me uh, essentially under religion and not under grace. The second point, the gospel calls me to, to place my hope completely, unreservedly, not in a way of living, not in a doctrine, not in anything but this, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God's Son, come in the flesh. You know, if someone were to come up to us uh, uh, on the street here uh, and ask, you know, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? You know, would we find ourselves sort of scrambling and trying to remember? I know there's four points in that Roman road. I know there's at least two diagnostic questions. I, I know uh, all of these uh, uh, forms that uh, uh, I need to uh, put into place. Uh, but I'm hoping that we might have the liberation of saying whatever else we say, and there's more to say. Please make no mistake about that. But the gospel is this. It is a person. It is Christ Jesus, the God-man, who has come into the world to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, as Austin so so simply but profanely uh, uh, told us and schooled us. Christ has taken all of my sin and brokenness and given me his integration, given me his wholeness, given me his health. He swallowed me up in himself so that when God looks, he sees Jesus and his innate righteousness imputed to me. The gospel is a person, and Paul will play this note over and over again that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a relationship. It's dynamic. It's real. It's personal. It's not a religious system. It's not a moral code. It's not a creed, important as those things might be. I'm not saying that those things don't matter. There are many things that matter and are important, but they're not the gospel. And those things must rest upon the gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus and what he has done for us, not what we can or what we might do for him.
And those who believe the gospel recklessly entrust themselves to Jesus alone. Now, those first two, you may be saying, hey, I'm here, I'm here in church, uh, that's obvious, uh, I believe that. But the third point I would say is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only the way that we were first saved, perhaps in the, in the crisis of conversion, it's not only the way that we were first saved and set in a right relationship with God, the gospel alone sustains our relationship with God all our days. Many of us believe the gospel for salvation and say, I was saved when I, when I trusted in the Lord Jesus. By God's grace, I recognized what he did for me on the cross. I asked Jesus to come in my heart. I received him by faith. And now, you know, I'm trying to live a Christian life. And I have my good days and I have my bad days. Some days uh, my act is sort of together and I feel close to the Lord. And other days I feel he's a million miles away. He's distant. Uh, um, uh, I'm not performing in a way that I think is uh, commensurate with what he uh, has for me. I'm, ha I'm not having quiet times as I should. I, I haven't prayed. I've kicked the dog a couple times already today. And what have we done? We've begun with the gospel, and then we've done as the Galatians uh, had a tendency to do. We've turned right back to the way of the law. And Paul will later say, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun with the gospel, what would cause you to turn back to the works of the law? Was it through the law that you received the Holy Spirit, or by believing? And it was by believing appropriating by faith what Jesus has done for us. Many of you have seen, I'm sure, that illustration of the bridge and the gospel tracts of coming into a right relationship uh, uh, with the Lord. We hear the gospel and the Spirit of God convicts us and we realize that we're sinners. We're on one side of this great chasm and, and God is holy and on the other side there, and there's this great divide. We're separated by Him by our sin and we cannot do anything through religion, through our own works, through our own performance, to bridge this gulf. I cannot get to God. And so the gospel comes to me and says that God has freely done from his side what you cannot do from yours. He has bridged that gap, that chasm with the cross and made the way to God, to be reconciled with and at peace with God. Yes, I see that, I receive that, I hear that gospel, that good news. But then I begin to go on in this new life with God and, and growing and maturing and I gaze at my Savior, I'm, I'm going to be conformed in His image, I'm going to become like Him, so I think in my daily experience I'm going to have this sense of, of getting um, closer and closer, more and more Godlike uh, every day. But what often happens is that we began to get to know God. And we realize that He's not just holy. 
He's the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And those seraphim and cherubim who attend to him have to cover their face at the brilliance of his glory and his grandeur and his majesty. And the more I realize when I see God that way, the more I realize I'm not just a sinner, I'm a thrice sinner. I'm a sinner, sinner, sinner. I'm really, really sinful, and my righteousness is as, as filthy rags comparatively. And my problem is not only my sin and transgressions, it's my goodness that tempts me back to pride. And so I can feel more distanced from God than close to Him. Well, the problem for most of us is that vision of the cross, the cross of Jesus, our understanding of the gospel was formed when we first heard it and recognized that the bridge crosses us and brings us to God. It brings us into a right relationship with God. But once in our ongoing experience and walk with God, we see the utter holiness of God and we see the gap, as it were, increase between his natural holiness and my innate sinfulness. Our view of the cross has been formed and it's no longer big enough in some ways to continue to bridge the gap. So as I go through life and live as a Christian, I begin to go, you know, he saved me back here, but I've got to do more. I've got to be more. Maybe I should teach Sunday school. Maybe I should lead a small group. Maybe I should attend more studies. Maybe I should volunteer for more service. I'm not pleasing God enough. I'm not, um, <laughs> what's wrong with me? I think what, what's wrong is that we're beginning to see things increasingly as they really are. What's wrong is that we don't yet recognize the cross is always bigger, always bigger than the gap, always more infinite than the chasm. The cross is infinite in its worth, in its value. His grace is always greater than my brokenness and my sin. It's always sufficient in reuniting me to the living God. Even, even as Austin said again, you know, it's, it's flinging ourselves to that God whose arms are always embracing us, always keeping us, always carrying us. And so I walk in daily intimacy in a sense of God's arms around me, his favor upon me, his acceptance upon me. Not because of, excuse me, of anything I'm doing or not doing, but purely and simply because every day, all through the day, I need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to my own heart over and over and over. He loved me and gave himself for me. I think we should have pronounced the benediction and, and after Austin there. And gave himself for me. He loved me. I always love Luther saying that real, true religion is a matter of personal pronouns. He loved me and gave himself for me. This is important. 
Because without the gospel, we automatically lapse back into law. Our default, I believe, as human beings is to lapse back into performance, back to gaining favor by what we do. You and I have been lovingly, freely accepted into intimacy with the living God because the one in whom we live and move and have our being is completely and utterly perfect. He has kept the law perfectly. He never fails. The Father has chosen in his infinite grace to look at us and see Jesus dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, absolutely faultless, to stand before his throne. Well, fourthly, the implication that some might draw, and some do draw from this, is that it is there, it therefore doesn't matter how we live. Since, since it's all of grace, since it's not of any works of the law, since it's not what I do that makes me right with God, then let us sin, that grace may abound, a, a sanctified license to sin. But as you know, Paul, uh, he's adamant uh, uh, in that kind of thinking too. He will go on to say, you've been set free, not to continue to live in brokenness, but in order to walk into freedom, God has opened the way for you to begin to live a truly human life. Human beings were created. Imago Deo, in the image and likeness of God, we were created to mirror His goodness and love and purity. When we look at Jesus, we not only see who God is, but we see who we were fashioned to be and who one day, by God's grace, will be like Him. And so he says, this is what I've invited you to. And the proof of whether or not you're beginning to get this is seen in whether or not you're beginning to live this out. You're not made right with God by whether or not you walk it out, but the proving fruit of whether or not you're beginning to get it is whether or not you're beginning to say, why would I continue in that bondage, a slave to sin, that just leads to brokenness. That's what caused my Lord to suffer the agony of the cross for me. Why continue there? That's not who I am anymore. And we look at the things, that's not who I am anymore. Uh, Augustine, the uh, story of Augustine, he was uh, quite the <laughs> rascal in his younger days, and uh, one of his uh, uh, lady friends, uh, after his conversion, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine replied, but it is not I. It is not I. That's not who I am anymore. And we look at the things of God, and it's not an oppressive law to be born grudgingly, so that I can please or favor God. Instead now, I've stepped into freedom and I say, that's good, that's my delight, that's my life. That's where I want to walk and live. 
And so any teaching that denies that the gospel is the very power of God unto salvation, and as Paul says in the verses that we read, has freed us from this present evil age, is a false teaching as well. So what have I tried to say? The gospel come to us, comes to us and first of all calls us to recognize our own, inner, our own utter inability to save ourselves. We are just as unable to bring ourselves to spiritual life and wholeness and reconciliation with God as we are to bring ourselves into physical life. Another had to do that for us, what we could not do. And secondly, we cast ourselves profligately. <laughs> That's a good word. You know, maybe the word of the day. Profligately, we cast ourselves upon Jesus Christ, recognizing that the gospel is not a creed, it's not a pattern of life or a philosophy of religion. It is a person, Jesus Christ. He is the good news. He is our salvation. Thirdly, we recognize that our life from here to eternity is, is sustained in him. At no point do we take it back, as it were, and now keep ourselves in that relationship with the living God. It will always and only be through Christ. The gospel is as true to the Christian lying, dying after a lifetime of faithful service as it is to the newest believer. Perhaps that's why the old gospel song says, those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like all the rest. Why? Not out of a sense of sentimentality, but because a Christian realizes that every day we must preach the gospel of God's grace to our own hearts to keep us from falling back into that pattern of being favored by God by our performance. And finally, the gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. And therefore, within the gospel is the power of God's own Holy Spirit to enable us to step out and to taste and to see this new and glorious life. We will fail, we will fail, but we will not be utterly cast down and, and act like Adam in the garden, hiding from God because we are preaching the gospel to our own hearts and following on, if we are the real thing, toward that day of glory, toward that day when by grace he looks at the likes of us the likes of us, and says, well done, all of his grace. Let's pray. Thanks be to you, O oh God. Great things you have done in saving a people unto yourself. May we hear and heed this message of good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings full and free. Amen.